This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is in town. She met with Governor Josh Green as well as uh, state health department officials yesterday. She spent part of the afternoon with University of Hawaii medical students to talk about their careers and the next pandemic. They wanted to know about the politics that played out during our global health crisis. And one surprising point that Walensky underscored is that in its 76-year history, this was the first time the agency has had to deal with the pandemic. Like the childhood nursery rhyme, she said the CDC had to be nimble, be quick to jump over the COVID candlestick. At a time where we had a pandemic that affected every one of 330 million Americans and included the global population, um, we as an agency had to pivot. We had to be um, more nimble, as you said. We had to engage about 25% of the agency at any given time in the public health emergency. And so what were some of the lessons that we learned during that period of time? And can we look at those lessons and be more nimble for whatever public health um, urgency or emergency um, we need to address in the future. I think too you mentioned about communication because here in Hawaii you know there were missteps and huge gaps and we just didn't know and we were all scared. Now that we're on the other side of this pandemic of, of this crisis I don't know, what else would you change as far as the communication piece? Yeah, so, you know, I think a lot of our communication, one of the challenges is we kept saying we are going to lead with the science. And we forgot the second part of that phrase, which was, and that will change. Science by nature changes because we continuously learn more. Um, and, oh, by the way, the virus changed. So not only were we learning more, but the virus was evolving in front of us. And so I think we really missed an opportunity to be able to say, this is what we should do for now and check back and continue to check back because things may change. And you're here uh, because you want to focus on creating the workforce, the next group of you know doctors and nurses and, and uh, folks within the CDC that will help deal with the next pandemic. What were you struck by with the questions that you were getting today? It's an inspired group. I, I, I was really, I was inspired by, by listening to their questions, by seeing the, the brightness of the audience and, and people who have their whole careers ahead of them and hoping to shape some of those careers. There was, you know, all walks of, of healthcare life in that room. And I think it was just inspiring. We had people from undergraduates through um, senior level faculty. And I think during this period of time, it has, much of what you've seen in the news has been about the burnout or the challenges or the shortages. And sometimes lost in that messaging is, it's an incredible field. And we have this gift and honor and responsibility to take care of individuals, to hear their life stories, to take care of, pop, of communities, um, and to understand their cultural needs, and to take care of whole populations. And that is just a gift. And we should embrace that gift and really take it where it leads us, um, because there is no specific path that we need to go down. Now, the CDC is going to be providing funding uh, to states, including Hawaii, to be able to, I think as you put it, institutionalize 
uh, some of the lessons learned. You know, and here in Hawaii, we had uh, many d- different groups that were just left out. You know, we didn't have a good system to network to get into the Micronesian community, the Marshallese community, uh, the Filipino community, and to get over those hurdles. Are states doing this all differently, or is there a kind of a, a blueprint for what we need to do the next time? It's a little bit of both because everybody's state coming from a different starting point. I think when we when COVID started, we this started on the back of a very frail public health infrastructure across the country, um, and that infrastructure is is some of what these resources are going to bolster. That infrastructure is made up of workforce, um, the people. It's made up of our data systems. How do the data systems connect? to county by county, across different state lines, and into the federal government. And it's made up of our laboratory infrastructure. Do we have the bricks and mortar labs, the equipment, and the workforce in order to work that equipment, in order to detect a new pathogen should it come to our shores? Um, And then finally, you mentioned equity. Um, As we think about that infrastructure, do we have a workforce that's as diverse as the communities that, that we serve, that have the cultural competencies of those communities to be able to reach those communities? I do think think COVID shined a light on the vulnerability of, of those communities, many of which you just mentioned. Um, and my hope, my dream, is that now that that light has been shown in COVID-19, that that light continues to shine bright so that we can actually address some of the needs of those communities outside of COVID-19 to create the connections, maintain the connections that we made in COVID, during COVID. And you were here uh, also to talk about the situation with Red Hill and the concerns that families who were affected by that field contamination have to this day. I know your participation is, is limited, but what can you say about how you've been partnering here with the Department of Health? Yeah, so first I will say everybody deserves clean clean drinking water. And so my hearts and, and good wishes go out to the tens of thousands of people who've been affected by this um, and the, the scare that this, this could lead to. Um, we are invited by the Department of Health in Hawaii, as well as the Department of Defense, in order to do early on an assessment of chemical exposure, which we did. I do want to make sure people know we published the results of that exposure of that assessment in May, so that it would be very transparent. People had increased rates of neurologic symptoms, of gastrointestinal symptoms, of rash. Um, and we are now coming back at the invitation of the Department of Health to follow up. We followed up late last year, and then to f- do another follow-up in May to continue those assessments to see if there are any long-term outcomes, long-term sequelae, reviewing medical charts um, to see what those long-term outcomes look like. The Secretary of State, uh, the, the Navy Secretary came here and talked to families and assured them that there would be programs to track nursing moms, you know, that kind of thing. And there hasn't been quite the follow-up, I think, from what we're hearing. I don't know what the CDC involvement with that you know at all so uh, we certainly would come at their request the department of defense is leading this effort with the department of health um with that request we would be happy to engage um right now our engagement has really been related to the long-term outcomes in the medical charts we were here in um the fall and we've been invited back for may we tend to try and be as transparent as possible. Some of what we've learned during the COVID-19 pandemic is to be as transparent as we can be um, and to publish those data quickly, which is why those data were published you know, soon after we were here. So I, I have every reason to believe that we would do something similar. And you were meeting with the uh, med school community here. Anything 
Any message that you have for uh, the larger community across the state about the CDC's mission and the next pandemic? Yeah, there's a lot of work that's happening within the CDC and a lot of work that's happening in our healthcare workforce. Um, I would say at a time where we have a vulnerable healthcare workforce and above vulnerable public health, um, that we have a, our own individual responsibility and that is to protect ourselves. And when we protect ourselves, we protect our public health community and our, and our healthcare workforce. So how do we protect ourselves? We do all the prevention things that we should be doing, getting our COVID-19 vaccine, staying up to date on our other vaccines and all those other screening things that are recommended so that we can actually remain healthy ourselves. And that was Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who is in Honolulu this week. She was returning from Asia, where the CDC has offices in Thailand and Vietnam. The CDC announced that it has set aside $14 million for Hawaii to strengthen our public health infrastructure and help with underserved communities. tuned to the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Today we're looking back to an event that put Hawaiian music on the national map. It was a 1915 global fair in San Francisco created to celebrate the completion of the Panama Canal. The fair's Hawaiian Music Pavilion became its most talked about attraction, launching international careers for several local artists. Sales of recordings and sheet music decorated with tropical images went through the roof. And artists like steel guitar master Joseph uh, Keikuku and uh, Keoke Avai's Royal Hawaiian Quartet were tapped to be the house band at the pavilion. Hula was also featured, and those in attendance fell in love with the music, dance, and exotic images of the islands. The event had a ripple effect on the world of American music as blues, pop, and country artists for generations afterward added the soul of the steel guitar to their music. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this watershed event? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. The 
The transformation of a downtown Honolulu office building to a residential tower marks a bit of a seismic shift in the land use world. 1132 Bishop is in the home stretch. It is now the residences at Bishop Place. It is still the home to the federal bankruptcy courthouse, but the floors above are largely residential rental units, studios to one and two bedrooms. We talked to Kevin Crummie, Chief Investment Officer for Douglas Emmett. It's a real estate investment trust, or REIT. It's determined that it could make more money for its shareholders by converting the high-rise from office space to residential, or resi. It worked with the city to use a powerful housing incentive called 201H. It waives building requirements to generate more affordable housing. Developers began kicking around the idea back in 2018, and apparently the deal was sealed after a meeting with Hawaii developer Jay Scheidler. He challenged them to look at their holdings in a different way. It came about in a very, very oddball way in that we went out to dinner with Jay Scheidler, and Jay was talking to us about island economies and how they're different from other places, and we walked out of that dinner and we realized that we had a an office portfolio that was perpetually 80-something percent leased, and we had a multifamily portfolio that was perpetually 98, 99% leased. And we said to ourselves, huh, it seems like there's an oversupply of office and there's super high demand for residential. So what if we look at one of our office buildings for potentially converting it into residential? And it would have the added benefit of moving people downtown and making the CBD of Honolulu more of a 24-hour place and a place that people go to during the daytime and then go home at night. So we kicked that around a little bit, and then we, uh, in 2019, we decided to do it, and we announced that we were going to convert the building. Well, your timing was probably pretty good, given what we saw what happened uh, to office space during the pandemic. But I'm sure there must have been challenges along the way, because I think this was the first major transition like this for a building downtown. Oh, yeah, there were, there were plenty of challenges. I mean, the first was we were about 65 percent lease so we had leases with a lot of people and we needed to figure out a way that we could build out the building kind of floor by floor and the biggest challenge is we needed to find five or six places where we could do vertical penetrations to run the wastewater and the water through the building in areas that we controlled because you didn't want to put a new sewer running through the middle of somebody's office space. And so once we figured that out, you know, it was just a function of getting people out, building out the floor, leasing up the floor, and moving on to the next floor. But, you know, we started in 2019. We should have the majority of the 493 units built by the end of this year, but we still have one or two floors where tenants are in occupancy that we might not get back for a couple of years. Well, I'm sure you probably hit tenants who really didn't want to go. (laughs) They were happy in that building. You know, fortunately, when you undertake a big construction project on a building, a lot of times tenants come to you and they say, I can't handle this. Please help ah, me to move. Okay. <laughs> so we did have some people raising their hands that we were able to move out. But one tenant actually exercised a renewal option immediately. And we said, what are you doing? And they thought they must have had leverage over us or something. And after about a year, that tenant said, can I leave? And we let him go. Okay. Just thinking about the logistics, the plumbing and the air conditioning, and all the other things that you might not normally you know, have to deal with when this is a strictly a commercial building. But residential is a totally different animal. The residential, though, 
It's really you're just coring your sewer and your your water lines. The electricity is already kind of run through the building, and then we're putting in heat pumps into all of the units. So we do have a new HVAC system than what we were using for the for the office building. We were able to actually take one of the elevators out of service to accommodate a lot of this vertical work that we needed to do. But you know there were challenges on just figuring out how to make an office building into resi because when you look at your ideal high rise apartment building, it's pretty skinny and long, so it's a long, skinny rectangle. And the closer you get to a square, the more difficult it is to build because you end up with really deep units. And when you end up with a really deep unit, it either feels like you're in a bowling alley or you have to double the size, and then you end up with a unit that's too big for the marketplace. And we worked with a firm called SCB out of San Francisco who came up with some pretty amazing floor plans that we were able to take the lower part of our building, which had 25,000-foot floor plates, and make it work to have a Class A apartment unit. And when you're doing a residential development, you know, there are all these things about open spaces parking, ventilation. So how did you work through those things? Very slowly, uh, but we we did work through it. And you are right. Like, for example, there's a um, an open space requirement. And you can pay a park dedication fee in lieu of the open space. When you are designing a building from scratch, it's really easy to figure out all of these amenity and common areas that meet the code. When you're taking an existing building and you're trying to make it work, it's, it's a lot trickier. We were required to have, I think, about 52,000 feet of public amenity, call it public space. We were able to come up with about half of that, but the other half was going to have to come out of runnable area, or we would have had to pay a really, really steep fee that made the project infeasible. And so we ended up putting the project into a 201H program and negotiated with the city over that, and they waived the fee. Parking's not as tough as you would think, given that we already have a pretty big parking garage under the building. And with the new rail coming in, the city is trying to discourage parking. And so they gave us a waiver on the number of parking spaces that we would have needed were we doing resi. And then there are some requirements for operable windows and every bedroom having a window in it. And our floor plan wasn't going to work for the bedrooms because we inboarded the bedrooms. The units weren't wide enough to put a bedroom on the on the window. And so we've got these great units with an inboarded bedroom that has sliding glass doors that are opaque, so you still pick up natural light, and it affords you a big living area right off your kitchen, living entertainment area. And then we also did not put in operable windows in the building. And that was a choice. It really came down to economics. Replacing all of the glass in that building would have made the project too expensive. And, you know, from a perspective of uh, keeping it green, having everybody have the ability to open up a window in a building where you're trying to control the energy usage in it isn't great. The market has accepted the fact that the buildings don't have operable windows. I want to say we've completed about 350 of the units and maybe 349 of them are leased. So people are okay with it. We've had one or two people come to us and say, I just can't take it without the window. And, you know, we say fine. And we backfill it with somebody else. So is the building greener? I mean, just by putting in a new HVAC system and replacing a chiller that was about 30 years old, we were able to uh, bring up the, the energy efficiency profile. And this whole idea of using a built 
structure as opposed to, you know, from the ground up? Is that something that you folks are doing in other markets? Uh, We're looking at doing it in other markets. There are some factors that you need. You need your multifamily rents to be at a considerable premium to what you could do for office space because multifamily is rented on the usable square footage where office is usable plus a load factor. So you lose about 20% of your rentable space just by converting to an apartment building. And so there are some factors that you need very, very strong demand on the multifamily side and not a lot of new supply. And Hawaii uh, definitely checked that box. So it was easy to underwrite. And you were able to get waivers on some of the requirements because you're providing what workforce housing? Correct. Our entire portfolio over there is workforce. Some of it has affordability agreements, some of it doesn't. But we, we find that when you're renting units between two and $3,000, that there's very, very high demand for it. We would not have built a super high-end luxury multifamily project because uh, we don't think there's as much demand for it in the marketplace. And what do you say about all the changes that are underway right now downtown? Because it seems to be that uh, there's going to be a lot of this adaptive reuse, uh, you know, as a way to get housing up faster. I'm super excited about it. I mean, we we wanted to make downtown better. And, you know, I think that we may have kicked off something that uh, other people are picking it up. I know that Davies Pacific is going to be converting some of their units into multifamily. There's a lot going on in Chinatown. And, you know, candidly, if we can get more people downtown out on the streets at all hours, it's also going to make downtown a little less gritty in certain areas of town. And if there was anything that you think would make it easier to do these conversions, what would it be? I think that the city needs to look at an adaptive reuse ordinance that allows more flexibility in the code. You know, the market's going to figure out a lot of things. When we inboarded these bedrooms, we believe that people would be perfectly fine with a great living area and a bedroom without a window. And you know what? If we were wrong, we just would not have made very much money on our investment. But nobody's hurt by not having a window in their in their bedroom. So it's things like that, the operable windows. There are a lot of things that come up when you're trying to, you know, change something that was built as an office building into resi. And the more flexible the city can be, the more things that you'll be able to get converted. That was Kevin Cromie, Chief Investment Officer for Douglas Emmett, the developer behind the conversion of a Bishop Street high-rise from office space to workforce rentals. And we'll continue exploring this idea of adaptive reuse tomorrow. We'll hear about changes coming to the iconic downtown tower, the Davies Pacific Center. reality check today is a story with a headline about bullies at the state capitol honolulu civil beat politics and opinion editor chad blair teamed up with political reporter blaze lovell to focus on what some say is bad behavior in the state senate good morning chad good morning Catherine. so yeah uh, i guess uh lots of buzz around this <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, the Capitol is, um, everyone is talking about it, a good many people. Uh, in a nutshell, um, the Water and Land Committee, uh, not too long ago, confirmed by a four-to-one vote 
Scott Glenn uh, to lead the State Office of Planning and Sustainability. Usually a four-to-one vote out of a committee means that that nominee is going to get a pretty good reception in the full 25-member Senate. That appears not to be the case, and we don't know what's going to happen exactly. But Lorena Noy, the chair of the Water and Land Committee, has gone on record saying there has been pressure from Donovan Dela Cruz and Michelle Kadani, uh, two very powerful senators, to derail the Scott Glenn nomination, uh, and that uh, there is a concern that that vote will happen tomorrow and maybe there will not be the numbers. We don't know. We can tell you that that Kidani and Dela Cruz did not respond to our inquiries, but in addition to Senator um, Inouye being on the record, a number of people spoke to us with anonymity granted uh, because they don't want to you know, basically ruin their relationships with people at the legislature. They said there does appear to be, in fact, some coercing, some bullying going on the part of Kadani and Dela Cruz regarding this nomination. Yeah, I mean, they are in very powerful positions. Uh, they hold the purse strings. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess if you want to play ball with them uh, to get your projects <laughs> through, right, sometimes that, that seems to be what happens at the end there. Yeah, Dela Cruz is chair of the Ways and Means Committee. That's the money committee uh, that approves um, nearly every bill that goes through uh, the Senate, which means through the legislature total. Also in charge of CIP, Capital Improvement Project, money. That's money that you know lawmakers like to take back to their district and say, hey, let's build a new school or a new rec center or fix this problem here and there. And you don't want to get on the wrong side of that of that uh, that committee. And then Michelle Kadani is the vice president. Uh, she's in leadership, and 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 she and, and Dela Cruz work closely. We should say that complaints about Kadani, Dela Cruz, several other senators are nothing new. It's it's been talked about for many years. Um, other prominent officials we've heard who play tough are Donna Kim and Glenn Rakai. In their defense, they've always publicly said, "We're doing our job. We're we're looking out for the voters. We're looking out for where the money's going." But there is a growing consensus, or at least a, it appears to be growing in that way, that maybe things are reaching a new boiling point. And there's some question as to how it's going to all shake out. Will there will there even be possibly a reorganization at some point in the Senate? Well, you know, we do hear these uh, senators talk about, you know, they're trying to keep people accountable. Uh, but we have heard folks, you know, say privately that some of the governor's appointees have just been treated poorly uh, during the confirmation hearings. And um, That's right. And, and, yeah, that's that's true. Some have also said that some of those appointees haven't been so good. We should mm-hmm. give that side of the story as well. Betty Kaika Anderson, of course, the Hawaiian Homelands nominee, uh, was really beat up pretty bad and ended up withdrawing his nomination. Kali Watson looks like he's going to make it. He did make it out of committee. But Chris Sadiasu, the appointment to lead DBED, a major agency, uh, is having to consider right now whether to go, whether he wants to go to the full floor. He was rejected in committee, beat up pretty bad. Uh, so that you have, uh, if you will, some pretty bad black eyes for the, the new governor, Josh Green, uh, who's come in with a mandate. He got a lot of people to vote for him, he and Sylvia Luke. And, and yet here's the Senate saying, hold on, we control uh, a lot of things, including Senate appointments. Yes, Excuse me, rather gubernatorial cabinet appointments. Yeah. And, you know, I had been talking with William Isla, the former DHHL director, and he said he got, a, you know, a scathing seven hour hearing. Uh, but he made it uh, through on the floor vote, you know, and, and he uh, led that agency. So, yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, like you said, the, 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 the brutal hearings are nothing new. 
Right, and we'll, Blaze and I will have an update uh, running tomorrow. I, I can't yet give away the scoop. Um, in fact, we're still reporting, trying to figure out what's going on. But bottom line, at least as of today, the, the vote on Scott Glenn for office and planning is set for tomorrow on the Senate floor. We'll see whether he has the 13 votes that are needed uh, out of a 25-member uh, Senate. Kurt Favela, one of the two Republicans, is already on record as saying no. It's unclear exactly whether the other votes stand right now, but Annoy. Lorraine Annoy, one reason she went public is to say she's just shocked that her fellow colleagues are interfering with the process. This is her committee. There's a certain courtesy that is extended to a committee chair. So we'll see. We'll probably have an update for you tomorrow. All right. All right. I'd be curious to see uh, what the governor thinks about all this as well. Oh, there's uh, that too. <laughs> yes. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read Blaze Level's story online at civilbeat.org. Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Karan Bajaj, author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to live a creative life in a material world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, Edward Wong explains what Chinese President Xi Jinping is really up to on his first visit to Russia since the Ukraine war began, and why that is making people wonder whether a new Cold War is underway. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at Sylvia Luke has been tasked with two big initiatives, building preschools and building broadband. But traditionally, the office has dealt with more mundane tasks, like when someone needs to legally change their name or to certify international documents. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden here to talk about what the lieutenant governor is doing to modernize those systems. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So as you were saying, the lieutenant governor has these mundane tasks like name changes and processing administrative rules. And one of these other functions is certifying apostles, which are international documents. And the office gets about a thousand a month. So that's a thousand people mailing in their personal documents for this certification. And this could be anything from a birth certificate or a marriage license. And the process is partially online, but there is that mail-in component. So Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke says that while the application is only a dollar, residents have a few more hoop, a few more hoops to jump through. The current process is we don't accept personal checks or you can't do an e-check and you can't 
charged by credit card. So the only way people can pay for the Apostle application is either cash or cashier's check. And in this day and age, how many people use cashier's checks? So you basically have to go to a bank and pay their cashier's check fee to get us a dollar. A lot of times, you know, we get documents in the mail. These are original documents like your birth certificate or a marriage license or a deed to your house we get the original document with a dollar attached to it so it's bad enough that you're giving us a original document but people are mailing us cash because they don't want to pay the cashier's check fee that sounds ridiculous <laughs> it is a little bit so when you go to the lieutenant governor's website you get to the apostles uh application and it's one of those fillable forms and you have to print it out and then you have to pack away some of your most secure documents and you mail it to the lieutenant governor you know you're not sure when it's going to get there and you're only paying a dollar so there's more to that mailing cost with something that you care about so much and a lot of the times the applications are inadequate or they're missing items so the office has to send back these mail applications which actually costs the state more money and so we give the dollar back plus it costs taxpayers a lot more money to send the documents back so we took a look at the entire apostle process and took a look at it in the standpoint of not just continuing just because that's the way that it's been done, but how do you make it accessible and user-friendly? So if you step back and look at it from user standpoint, you want an online process. So even like passports, you can do application through the online and get it processed and then mail in your documentation at another point, right? So do an online process that's accessible. The second thing is the fee should be easily done as opposed to forcing people to send us cash or going to a cashier's, getting a cashier's check. So our staff has already reached out to a vendor who might be able to help us do either a credit card, um, credit card fee or e-check fee or some other way to make it easier. So there's one bill this session, which is House Bill 964, that would modernize this apostle process and take it online with that third-party vendor. And the LG also has some other roles like keeping paper copies of administrative rules and hand stamping documents to certify them, as well as posting agendas in the Capitol. So departments will fax over their committee agendas. Somebody will take it all the way from the fifth floor of the state legislature and bring it all the way down to the Capitol to post them up. And Lieutenant Governor Luke sees this as an opportunity to not just simplify her office's duties, but to modernize a lot of these antiquated processes. Does it make sense that somebody go down to the basement and hand staple or hand tack on uh, actual notice? So even the posting of notices, as opposed to doing it a manual way, we think, okay, should we do in a time where everything is done electronically, everything is filed electronically, is there a better way to, instead of having you give us uh, actual paper and then we deliver it, can we be done it? And so even those little things we're trying to see, are there statutory provisions that limit it and are there statutory restrictions or changes that need to be made? So it has been exciting, you know, 
we discover all these things, right? You know, whether it's manual posting or manual stamping or why is this done this way or why is a cost only a dollar and it costs more to mail it back or why does a fee, why does the state only accept money or cashier's check, all those things, I think the way that our office is approaching it is how do we make it so that it's user-friendly for you and how is it user-friendly for the residents as opposed to, okay, you know, this is, we don't want to change things, it's status quo and this is how it should be. So I think for all the individuals who work in our office, their mentality is, hey, let's continue to reform. Yeah, I think they need it. <laughs> it's all about efficiency, it seems. Absolutely, yeah. The office has over four different hand stamps. You know, there's time and date stamps, there's state seal. It's all these different things just to make something certified. Yeah, it seems very crazy, but thank you so much. <laughs> that was uh, HBR Sabrina Bowden with uh, efforts uh, that uh, the lieutenant governor is uh, uh, pursuing to modernize uh, some of the traditional duties of the office. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz Answer. Hawaiian music was, at one time, the hottest style of popular music in the country. We look back at the event that started it all. It was held in San Francisco in 1915, a worldwide expo to celebrate the completion of the Panama Canal. It was also a major rebuilding event for the Bay Area, which had been devastated by the great earthquake and fire of 1906. The Hawaiian Pavilion, which featured hula and musical performances, quickly became the hot ticket, and a nationwide craze for all things Hawaiian began. You can hear the steel guitar influence in some of the earliest blues and country music recordings from the early decades of the 20th century, and later in the popular songs of artists like Bing Cosby. Uh, Crosby. Uh, the fair that put Hawaiian music on the world map is remembered as the Panama Pacific International Exposition of 1915 in San Francisco, California. And the winner today, David Chang from Honolulu. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. On the next Fresh Air, why the United States has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. We speak with Pulitzer Prize winning author Matthew Desmond about the roots of American poverty and how he says so many affluent citizens benefit from government subsidies and exploitation of the poor. His new book is Poverty by America. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808 691 8200. 
This month, millions of people who rely on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP it's called, are going to lose the extra benefits they got during the pandemic. My daughter this morning, she was like, Mom, you need to buy more snacks. There's no snacks over here. I'm like, you don't say. I'm Kai Rizdal, losing those extra SNAP dollars and one family's food budget. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. COVID-19, natural and human-made disasters, and climate adaptation are just a few of the topics that will be discussed at an upcoming conference hosted by the Japanese Women's Leadership Initiative at the East-West Center. It's titled Transforming Crisis into Opportunity. Speakers from all over the globe will be coming in to participate in the two-day event, which begins on Thursday, March 23rd. East-West Center President Suzanne Varisalam spoke with the, the conversation Stephanie Hahn about the importance of women in leadership roles. What is the primary goal of this event? Well, our goal, of course, is to bring women together so that they can explore opportunities and showcase women's leadership. Really, the goal is to help empower women, Mm -hmm. especially in the areas of of leadership Mm -hmm. and economic uh, engagement, Mm -hmm. particularly in a time when, you know, um, when we look at the global economic participation index that came out by the um, World Economic Forum last year. And it really showed that only 30 out of 145 economies around the world had made progress. And overall, you know, the United States is 27 out of that 145 and Japan is 116. So there's a lot of work to be done. And the more opportunities where we can come together to figure out how do we overcome those gaps, I think, is important. Yes, I was reading, it said, according to the World Economic Forum, that it will be 118 years before there will be some gender equity. While overall the United States, we see this downturn. You know, in Hawaii, we've made a lot of, I think we can be an example. And Mm -hmm. I think this connection with Hawaii and Japan, being that this is the Japanese Women's Leadership Initiative, you Mm -hmm. know, to make this connection with us, I think about 50% of our congr- U.S. congressional delegation is are two women mm-hmm. in two very powerful committees, the Senate Armed Services Committee and the House. So Senator Hirono and Representative Jill Takuda. So we are closing that gap. Hawaii is. You know, a lot of our key critical infrastructure CEOs with Hawaiian Electric with Shelley Kimura and Tiranishi with American Savings Bank. You know, you, you look at through Shim at Hawaiian Telephone. You know, these are very um, traditionally very male-dominated roles in banking and critical infrastructure, and yet Hawaii, we're leading with women CEOs in these key jobs, which I think is, um, you know, just a powerful message, and it's worth investigating. Why is that? Yeah. And having us ask those questions. Yes, and what are the qualities that you think that women possibly bring to leadership roles? I think women bring the qualities of the unique experiences they have growing up of having to really understand a very complex space 
uh, compromise that they've had to learn as they're growing up as young girls. And also as women, many of them mothers and wives, how do you balance that space of family, which um, is an opportunity for a perspective, but has often been a barrier for economic participation for women. We talk about caring for families, but they have a unique perspective and understanding that I think any organization benefits from. What steps can we take to change the narrative of gender equity. I was reading an article about, uh, written by a sociologist, Japanese sociologist, who was stating that it's not simply education that will move women into managerial positions, but it has to be an entire narrative that that is redrawn and that takes hold in people's mind in order to have women enter these leadership positions. So what is the narrative in your mind that needs to take hold? That it isn't just a women's issue, that this, you just said entire, so I think of the whole of society, which means that it's the other 50% as well, which are men. Men who sit in those positions of power and provide opportunities, sponsorship and mentorship, being male allies in the workplace, not just looking at it as the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do. Because if you're only tapping into 50% of your talent, then you're losing an opportunity. But when you're tapping into 100% of that talent of any nation, any community, then you're leveraging um, possibilities. And you're going to improve in your economy and your education and your, your overall society. So everyone benefits, not just women. So what might be one or two concrete steps that a small business owner or a person who's leading a team uh, can take in order to improve this gender equity situation? Being willing to first evaluate if they are really um, tapping into all the talent and are there biases that are maybe unconscious biases in the selection process? And are we being gatekeepers, uh, especially sometimes people in positions of power, gatekeepers and saying, well, that person isn't ready. So I think the first step is evaluation and real and a recognition that this really isn't just about uh, women. This is really about how do you improve your business and organization by getting the best talent. Given the landscape of women post-COVID, there's been a period of increased domestic violence levels, layoffs. What do you think is going to be unfolding right now? What do we need to prioritize given that we're coming out of this crisis situation? I think we need to shed, shed some light on this, this situation and, and look at the reasons why. Also, we need to provide opportunities Um, for mentorship, training, skills development, these kinds of platforms that we're having, these conferences to look for, to bring people together, to look for solutions on how we can address these issues. But not just one-off, but it has to be a sustained, continuous conversation in communities and um, actually creating um, coalitions of folks to create mentorship programs, create skill-building programs, And then really look at the other cause, too, is caregiving. 
that has mm-hmm. been an obstacle for many women to be able to come back into the workforce. COVID-19 has created that issue. I think that has been at the forefront of conversations here in the United States, but that's not always the conversation elsewhere, globally and internationally. Right. The caregiving for children as well as aging family members has often gone to women, and that's not often talked about in many of the international countries in our region. Right. I think in particular, as you're saying, the Asia-Pacific regions, because you can obviously look at a place like Germany or some of the other Nordic countries and their social services and their standard of living for women, I notice, according to the UN and the World Economic Forum, is it's just leagues ahead of what of how women live here in the United States. I'm, I was astounded, actually. That's exactly right. Those social services are available that enable women to be in the workforce, to be able to balance work and and family life. And then also expectations of uh, the male role in the family as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That also plays a big part of it. In the Asia Pacific, you know, New Zealand is a great example of that, closing that gender gap on many levels of economic participation and political participation. Right. So, but one of the few in the Asia Pacific region. Right. This sounds really like an exciting conference. And from what I understand, people can register for the live streaming. Is this correct? That's correct. So, we are on Thursday, March 23rd, and uh, Friday, March 24th. Um, and they can register online by visiting us at eastwestcenter.org and looking for Transforming Crisis into Opportunity, Women's Leadership Global Summit. We really feel that it is a key part of good governance, meaning any kind of society that's going to thrive, you really need to include, of course, your total population. And until we meet there, and hopefully we don't have to wait 132 years, (laughs) we're going to have to continue to have these programs until we don't have to. That was the East West Center President uh, Susie Barris Lum talking with Dave Chair Stephanie Hahn. A uh, global a women's global leadership seminar entitled "Transforming Crisis into Opportunity" kicks off this week. It's in partnership with the Japanese Women's Leadership Initiative. Live streaming registration is open until the start of the conference on Thursday. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from a pediatrician who played a key part in solving Flint, Michigan's lead problems in their drinking water. Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast online on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.